Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Hopefully you received a a booklet on your way in, uh, the second edition of our booklet on the Gospel of John. We produce those to aid you in your study of the Word, in your private devotional times, to to, uh, provide some shape to your discussions of the sermons in your community groups. And uh, we hope you enjoy that. We are walking through a long series where we're taking a careful and close look at the Gospel of John. And the reason that we're doing that is we think it is our conviction as a leadership and as a church family that the most important thing in the world is what we do with the life and the claims of Jesus Christ. We think that is the most important decision you will ever make is what you believe about Jesus Christ. And that's not just our opinion. That comes actually from the Gospel of John. We've mentioned this to you a couple of times in the series so far. John tells us at the end of his book the reason he's collected these stories about Jesus. He says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. That's what John wants. He wants you and me to have faith. He wants us to have faith that Jesus is who he claims to be. And now faith is a word that we really need to, to drill, drill down into. We can't make a statement like that and just assume we all know what we're talking about when we say the word faith. We need to really understand what biblical faith is. H.L. Mencken, who was a journalist and a scholar who wrote uh, about 100 years ago, said, uh, he defined faith this way. He said, it's an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. The illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. Is that right? Is that what we're looking for when we see biblical faith? No, it's not. If, if that's what faith is, then the claim that I believe Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ is really no different than R. Kelly singing, I believe I can fly, right? That puts those things on equal ground if that's how we're defining faith. But that's not how we're defining faith. As pithy and as clever as that definition might be, it is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is this. Here's how John Stott describes it. This is just as pithy, and it has the benefit of being true. Faith is a reasoning trust that rests on credible testimony. It's a reasoning trust. God never asks you to abandon your brain at the door to consider the claims of Jesus. It's a reasoning trust that rests on a testimony that's credible, that's true, that can be verified. And the invitation of Scripture is never to come and have blind faith in something that your mind and your heart knows can't really be true. The invitation of Scripture is Look to the witnesses who give testimony to the truth about Jesus Christ and believe. We're going to be in John chapter 1 and hear from some of those witnesses today. So if you're able and willing, please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Philip said, or Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were standing under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's Word. The testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. May His Word make us wise unto salvation today. Amen. Please take your seats. Jesus is calling disciples to kingdom life with Him. And this calling has a message and it has a means. The message is come and see and the means is find and bring. Two points today. Come and see, find and bring. That's where we're going. First, come and see the message of kingdom life as a disciple of Jesus. The last two weeks, we have been looking at the first witness to the life and the deity of Jesus Christ, and that is John the Baptist. Anywhere in John's gospel, you see the word John. It's not talking about John the writer. It's not talking about John the apostle. It's talking about John the Baptist or John the baptizer or in honor of the fact that the NBA playoffs are in full swing. We could call him John the dunker, right? So John comes on the scene. He's preaching. He's testifying to a repentance and a baptism that's preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. And he's testifying to who Jesus is. And what we saw two weeks ago is that he testified to the deity of Jesus to uh, the, the uh, delegation who came from the Jewish leaders of Levites and priests. On the next day, he testifies to the crowds and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what Pastor Paul preached on last week. If you missed that message, you should really go and check it out. John said, there is the sin-bearing Lamb, the one who stands in the place of his people. And this is the next day. And what John has just testified to publicly, he's now going to testify again privately. There's no, there's no difference between what John is, who John is claiming to be publicly and who he is privately. It's one of the reasons we love him. He's consistent. He literally has the same message that he had for the crowds. As Jesus is walking by, John's standing there with two of his disciples, two of his followers. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these two disciples, they leave John... In essence, they step out of John's rabbinical school and they join in to follow Jesus. And I just want to make one note about this. You know, John the Baptist at this point in history, he is a big deal. John is, he is famous. He is well known. People are coming out from the cities to hear him preach. Everyone's excited about John. And if John the Baptist were to be ministering in this day and age, everyone would be going to him and saying, hey, it's time to write your book. 
It's time to think about how we can elevate your platform. It's time to get your name on billboards and your face on the blogs or whatever. But that's not what John's here for. John's here to testify. He said, don't, he said, don't look at me. Don't worry about what I'm doing. You need to look at him. Look to the Lamb of God. And at this moment in the story, as these two disciples leave John to follow Jesus, this is actually the end of John's role in redemptive history. He begins to fade into the background as Jesus steps forward and he takes center stage. And as Jesus is walking, these two disciples are following after him. And I think the picture that he's painting there is we're supposed to sort of enter into it. You can kind of see Jesus walking along the way and these two disciples kind of, they, they close, the, close the gap and end up walking behind him. Not unlike the little baby geese who I almost ran over on Veldadary Road this week. Fortunately for them, I'm skilled in evasive maneuvers in my van. Uh, it was like Jason Statham in an action movie. Uh, the geese were fine. The geese were fine. So they're following Jesus is the point. And Jesus turns around and he asks them a question. He says, what are you seeking? Now, something I was thinking about, throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus has a way of asking questions that seem like very simple, very straightforward inquiries. But actually, he's, he's setting up something world-tilting behind it. Have you ever noticed this about Jesus, the way he asks these questions? Jesus will say, well, who do you say that I am? Why do you call me good? Who touched my robe? Peter, why are you? Peter, do you love me? When Jesus asks these questions, it seems like there's something very simple that he's trying to get at, but he's actually trying to reveal something about himself to his hearers. And he's trying to reveal something about his hearers to his hearers as well. He's saying, disciples, what is it that you want? Why are you here? And I think that, that's exactly what's happening here. He's, he's asking a much deeper question to these disciples, and then by extension to us as well. What is it that you want? Why are you here? What brought you to this place? And these disciples' answer to this question is actually kind of interesting, right? Uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? You know, we can, we can, we can relate to that. They're kind of communicating like, I don't, I don't really know what we want. We're, we're compelled by your message. We've heard all these things about you, and we want to know if these things are true. And I love how Jesus responds. It would have been totally right if Jesus said, John just told you I'm the Lamb of God, and I asked you what you want, and you want to know, like, where my Airbnb is? Like, you want to come, like, what is that? That's your question? That's how you're going to use that? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke them for asking a silly question. He doesn't crush them. Instead, what does he say to them? Come and you will see. Come and see. That's the invitation Jesus gives to his disciples. And notice this. He doesn't say, well, you stand there and figure out who I am. Figure me out from a distance and then you can come and follow me. You know, so often that's how we think about coming to Jesus. We've got to get our, we've got to get our stuff together. We've got to get everything situated. We've got to get our room cleaned up. We've got to get our life organized. We've got to achieve at least an acceptable baseline of spirituality. Then we can come to Jesus, right? Then he'll accept us. We've got to get ourselves, get our, like our Sunday best on and then Jesus will accept us for who we are, right? Isn't that so often how we live? But Jesus doesn't tell them to do that. He says, he says, come and see. Come get experiential knowledge 
of who I am. Just come as you are. Come and see. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. Bring your sin. Bring your messy marriage. Bring your sexual brokenness. Bring your anxiety. Bring your struggles over your identity. You don't need to have your stuff all figured out to come to me. You just need to come and see. Come and see. I was having a meeting with a leader in the church this week, and he was acknowledging to me and confessing some of the struggles that he's having in his relationship with the Lord. And, and he was talking about the broken relationship he has with his earthly father and how much that, that bears weight and, and makes difficult his ability to relate to God as his heavenly father. And he was confessing this and the struggles that it's causing in his life and how he's really trying to receive from the Lord in the midst of it. And he said, you know what? I, here's, here's what I need. You know what I need today? I just need a fresh look at Christ today. And I thought, oh man, that is so profound. That's what we need, isn't it? We need a fresh look at Christ. That's what Jesus says to the disciples. Come, come and look at me. Come and see Jesus to the disciples. Peter, or excuse me, Philip says the same thing to Nathaniel. Come and see, come and experience Jesus. They respond to that invitation. They came and they saw and they become his disciples. They spend the day with Jesus. We're told that one of them is Andrew and we're not given the name of the other disciple, but they spend this time with Jesus. And in verse 39, there's, there's something I want to draw your attention to. It says it was about the 10th hour. That means it's about 4 o'clock. And I want to draw your attention to that because when you see details like that, they seem very insignificant in the story. It doesn't do anything for the narrative for John to tell you that it was 4 o'clock. Okay? It seems insignificant, but the presence of that insignificant detail is actually communicating something very significant. Let me tell you what it is. Think about this for just a minute. The New Testament is full of these kinds of details. So this happened on this day, and then the next day, this happened. Philip is from Bethsaida. In John 21, Jesus tells them to put the nets on the other side of the boat, and they catch 153 large fish. Here's the point. When you read ancient fictions, they never use this level of detail. They never use detail. If you read any of the fiction from that time, there's no details like this. You know what sort of literature in that time had this level of detail? Witness statements. Eyewitness accounts. That's why many of the commentators say it is very likely that this second disciple, this unnamed disciple who came to Jesus with Andrew, was most likely John. Which would make total sense because John never mentions his own name in this gospel. The farthest he'll go is to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's very likely that this second disciple is John. We can't say for sure. But this would track with everything we're seeing in this gospel. John is saying over and over again, as well as the other gospel writers, they make this point over and over. We saw this. We saw him. We experienced this. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. And here's the thing. They want you to look at the evidence because when you actually look at the evidence in the Bible, when you look at the evidence in the gospel accounts to the life of Jesus Christ, you get confronted with the fact that there are only two legitimate ways to view these accounts. This is, C.S. Lewis makes this clear in his writings. There's only two ways to view this material. It's got to be one thing or the other thing. It's either the fact that these blue-collar Galilean fishermen who were completely uneducated, 
who were social nobodies, who grew up Jewish, which meant their whole life, all they heard over and over again was there's this distance between God and man. Man can't be God. God can't be man. You have to believe that this group of men articulated a version of events that was a lie, but was so compelling that it literally turned the world upside down. And then each one of them went valiantly to their deaths rather than to recant their statements about the deity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either you have to believe that or you have to believe that it's true. It's got to be one or the other. The testimonies themselves will not let you live in that squishy middle where it's like, well, Jesus is a good teacher, but come on. Listen, it takes just as much faith, I think, to believe that this first scenario could have happened as to believe that it's true. And these details are put into this account so that you can see that this is credible testimony. The disciples are saying, come, look at our testimony. Look at the things that we saw and evaluate it for yourself. We look at these disciples, their their stories, and we see what Jesus did for them. So we look at Peter's life. Jesus said, come and see and be changed. When Peter comes before him, he says, you know, Simon, you're the rock. You're like the rock, like Dwayne Johnson, like the rock. That, that's you. You're the rock man. And you know what's funny? You read these gospel accounts, you're like, Peter, rock? Like, really? I mean, Peter's a lot of things, but is he a rock? Is he the rock man? We're talking about Peter, the same guy that, that one time Jesus called him the devil. You know, like, get behind me, Satan. You know, Jesus actually said that to Peter at one point. Peter, the guy who, with all of his bluster, said, all these other fools might deny you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. And then he wilts under the pressure of the examination and questions of a, of a servant girl around the fire. He denies Jesus three times in Jesus' hour of need. That, Peter, that's the rock? Well, here's the thing. Rocks take a long time to form. And by the end of the gospel accounts, this this man full of, of brashness, who's wilting under pressure, this Peter has become the rock. He's become the primary leader of this of this, of this fledgling little church. The church is actually built on Peter's testimony at Pentecost. He preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified and the church is born. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ and the church is born. And a movement starts that continues to this day that we are the beneficiaries and the recipients of. Peter becomes the rock. He doesn't start out as the rock. And by the way, those stories about Peter's foolishness those also testify to the trustworthiness of these events. Because if this was a fabrication, don't you think Peter would have scrubbed that from the record? Like, take all those things that I said that make me look like an idiot, let's polish that up a little bit. Do you know why they're in there? Do you know? Because it happened. It's true. In Peter, we see, come and see and be changed. We look at Nathaniel's testimony. Jesus says, come and see and be known. Be known. Look at verse 45. Philip comes to Nathanael and he says to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's answer is awesome. He's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I, I just have to think, this is, you know, this isn't in the Bible. This is just me. 
So filter it accordingly. I'm just thinking that the disciples probably loved to remind Nathaniel that he did this, right? (laughs) Have you ever done something that you thought was like really clever and really slick, only you never could live it down because it actually was kind of silly? Have you ever done that? I certainly have. Let me tell you a story of when I did that. Uh, Early on in my marriage, very early on, I want to stress this is very early on, uh, I decided that I wanted to scare my wife. Um, I was bored. I I don't know why. And so (laughs) she's right there. She knows the story. And so it was, it was time to go to bed. I was in our room. She was coming in. I knew she was coming to bed. She was bringing us some water. And so I decided that, not very elaborate, I'm going to hide behind the bed. And when she walks in the room, I'm going to jump out, right? And, ah, you know, oldest trick in the book. Always hilarious. <laughs> not hilarious. Uh, and so when the moment came, I jumped out, screamed, and it went so bad. Like, it was so bad. She screamed louder than I screamed. The water went everywhere, and the tears came in abundance, okay? <laughs> and that's, now that's a funny story that we talk about, right? It's part of our story. It was not funny at the moment, but it was, it's, it's now it's part of our story. I think, I'm just imagining a day, years later, when the disciples are sitting around after dinner, and they're like, hey, Nathaniel, <laughs> remember what you said that time when Philip came and preached the good news to you? Awesome, right? Awesome. Nice job, Nathaniel. And I love the way Philip responds. He says to Nathaniel the same thing Jesus said to him. Hey, man, come and see. Come and see. I'll go with you. Let's go to Jesus. And as Jesus sees Nathaniel coming toward him, he says, there's an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Jesus saying, man, you're a straight shooter. You're the real deal, Holyfield. Good for you. And Nathaniel's a little freaked out by this, and he says, well, well how, how can you know me? Jesus looks at him, and he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, what? How could you possibly? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, what does that mean? I don't actually know. <laughs> you read the comment. I went on like a commentary deep dive on this this week, trying to figure out if someone could unlock for me what this means. And so some people say that, you know, he may have been reading his Bible under the tree, so it would have been customary for them to read their Old Testament scriptures under a fig tree. Some people uh, guess that he may have had some sort of spiritual experience under the tree. The point is we don't actually know. We don't actually know what this means. But what we do know is that it was something so very personal, something so meaningful, something so freighted with significance that it could only mean to Nathaniel that Jesus knew him all the way down. Jesus knew exactly who he was, and it changes Nathaniel. He goes from skeptic to preacher in about two sentences. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, you think that's good? You think that's amazing? Oh, you have no idea what's in store for you. You have no idea the things I'm going to show you. He says, you, and it's actually plural, y'all, y'all will see far greater things than these. The message of kingdom life, be a disciple of Jesus, is come and see. Come and see. That's the message. Now, the means, the means of kingdom life as a disciple of Jesus is find and bring. How do we do it? What's the strategy? How do we get people to come and see who Jesus is and what he's done? So here's the secret strategy. You ready? I could get in a lot of trouble for telling you this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You go into Paul's office, 
You, you move the secret compartment where, where the Charles Spurgeon painting is. There's the safe there. You need like four elders there to do the retinal scan. The safe opens. There's one piece of paper inside, and it's got the secret strategy in it. You ready? Here it is. You go and you tell people about it. There's the big strategy for how this kingdom is going to advance, how this community of disciples is going to grow. Once you've come and you've seen, you go and you find and you bring. That's how it works. In, in the gospel, you are given a new identity as a witness. Every disciple becomes a witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there are two motivators that take us from come and see to find and bring. Two motivating factors. First is imitation. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow behind him, to do the things that we see him doing. And what do we see in Jesus Christ? We see him coming in the flesh, moving into the neighborhood to seek and to save that which is lost. In verse 43, we see Jesus doing the Jesus version of evangelism to Philip. I love it. He just says, hey, you follow me. Let's go. That's how Jesus rolls in evangelism. All he has to do is say, you follow me. And Philip goes and he follows him. But what does Philip do immediately after that? He immediately goes to Nathanael and he does what he saw Jesus doing. He invites him. Come, come and see what I've seen. Let me find you and bring you to Jesus. And I love the way he responds when he encounters Nathanael's skepticism. When he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says the same thing Jesus said. Hey, come and see. Come and see. Let's go to him. And I love this. We can be bold in our witness because Jesus shows us in this text that the gospel isn't just for one kind of person, right? The call of the gospel goes out without discrimination, without distinction to everyone. And so we see a couple of different portraits of this just in this text. We see Peter, Simon Peter. He's the willing convert. He's that loving family member who's always just loved you. He's ready to receive anything you have to say. Of course, it makes total sense. He's going to come, and Jesus is going to work in that situation. But in Nathaniel, you've got the skeptic. (laughs) He's petty. He can't get past the whole, like, Nazareth, Cana, weird, like, outskirts of town, you know, rivalry thing they have going on there. But the gospel is for both of them. And Jesus is the power to save anyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what obstacles might stand in the way to who you are. You know, just in the last month, we've had six people get baptized, and every time somebody gets baptized here, they go down to the water and they give testimony to how Jesus saved them. And I was so struck by, as we heard them, we heard these testimonies, how each person has a different story. So one young lady was pursuing a life of of sin and, and got, came to the end of her robe dealing with the consequences of her sin. And there was a community through a campus ministry and through this church that welcomed her in, that, that went and found her and brought her to Jesus. Another woman had never given any thought to whether there was a God, what sort of claims he might make on her life, but through the persistent questioning of her son, her little, her little child, the hound of heaven came after her. And so she she brought up some of these questions to a woman who was in her homeschool community, and that woman came and, they, and brought her to Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's such an amazing thing. Jesus welcomes every kind of person to come and see, and because of that, we, as imitators of Jesus, we put that gospel call out to anyone. We refuse to edit any person out of God's story. Not only... 
Are we motivated by imitation? We're motivated by an impulse. There's an impulse in our hearts when we have come and when we've seen. We have this love for Jesus, and then we have this love for the people around us, and we want to bring those loves together. We want to see Jesus meet that person that we love as well. We see this in Andrew's example. Andrew's first thought is, i got to go tell my brother. I love my brother. I want him to experience what I've experienced. D.A. Carson says that Andrew thus became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother. And it's really no more complicated than that. Do you love them? Bring them to Jesus. You don't need to be a scholar. One of the, one of the reasons we don't bear witness to who Jesus is is we don't feel like we're competent to answer all the questions. But let me ask you, how much knowledge do you think Andrew had when he went to Simon Peter? How much knowledge do you think Philip had when he went to Nathaniel? You don't need to be a scholar. You just need to love them. This desire to share Jesus with people, it comes immediately and naturally to everyone who's come and who's seen. One of my favorite community group meetings we've ever had, we had just a couple of weeks ago, when one of my, one of my brothers in the group was just we were talking about this idea of this desire we have to see people who are near us come to faith in Christ. And this one brother was just pouring out his heart. He was talking about these people who were close to him, how much, how much he loves them, how much he desires for Jesus to come and to overcome their unbelief and how he's asking the Lord to use him to speak into those situations even though he feels inadequate, even though he feels like he's unequipped to be able to answer all the questions to overcome that unbelief. And we were just praying together that Jesus would work through their prayers. This is what it means to be someone who has seen the glory of Jesus Christ. We have this impulse because found people find people. Those who have seen the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the grace of Jesus have a desire to see other people experience that as well. So Jesus' disciples find and bring by testifying to the reality of who he is. But there's one more witness that we're hearing from in this text. One more witness to the deity of Jesus, and that's Jesus himself. Look at verse 51, and we'll close with this. Jesus says in verse 51, I tell you the truth. If you have a King James Bible, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Neither of these translations really get and what's being communicated in the original language. In the original language, it says, Amen, Amen. Isn't that interesting? Now, the word Amen, it's, it's, a, it's an Aramaic and a Hebrew word that gets carried over and transliterated into the Greek, meaning they just keep the word as it sounds, and they express it in Greek. And then the same thing happens from Greek to English. This is a word that we keep with us to use it because it's a unique sort of word. And this word means this is true. And everywhere you see Amen, it's used by a person who is seeking to affirm the words of another person. They're saying, yes, this is right. So a young uh, Jewish scholar gets up in the temple and he, he preaches a message from the Torah. The older rabbis will say, amen, it checks out. It's true, it's right. We affirm that statement. We still use this word today. When we end our prayers, that's not just like the standard sign-off, right? When we say amen, we're saying, God, let it be so. Let these things that we've asked you for, these things that we've held before you, let them come to pass. Amen. It's true. It is true. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, you're actually allowed to say amen in church. 
If the pastor says, there you go, thank you. If the pastor says something that's true, it's okay to say amen. It's true. It's true. But here's what's so unique about this moment in the Bible. Everywhere else you see this word, it's used after someone has made a statement. But here Jesus uses it to introduce what he's about to say. And not only does he use it to introduce it, he uses it twice. And anywhere you see repetition in the Bible, you know something very important is being said. So here's the sense of it. Here's what Jesus is communicating. I like how Tim Keller summed it up. He says, when Jesus says, amen, amen, he's saying, I take away your right to decide whether what I am saying is something you like. (laughs) He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. And here's what he says. You will see heaven opened, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Nathaniel, as a Jew, would have immediately thought back to Genesis chapter 28. And the story of Jacob, he's on the run from his brother Esau. He's in the desert and he lays his head down on a stone and he has a dream. That dream we know as Jacob's ladder. And in this dream, Jacob sees that an opening has been made between heaven and earth an opening between holy divinity and broken humanity, the place that we long to see and the place that we see and experience in the here and now. An opening is made and there's a ladder and angels are ascending and descending between heaven and earth. And then he wakes up from the dream. And Jacob puts down a pillar and he calls that place Bethel, which means the house of God. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. This place is the gate of heaven. And so what Jesus is communicating to Nathaniel and to us is, what I'm about to say is really true. That dream that Jacob had, it wasn't just a dream. It was a prophecy. It was a promise. And I am here as Bethel. I am the house of God. I am the Lord in your midst. I am the gate of heaven. And the way that you experience heaven, that place that's, that's buffered off from you, that you can't get access to, but that your heart longs for, it's not that you, you get up and climb the ladder. You experience it through me. That's the only way you can experience it. You can't climb the ladder. Notice it doesn't say that we are climbing up and down the ladder. Jesus says, I am the ladder. I am heaven come to earth so that you can see and experience the world that you were made for. This is Jesus' own testimony to his deity. Jesus is saying, this God that you've waited for, these stories that you've heard all your life, they testify about me and it's here. The time is now. This is what we celebrate at the Lord's table. We can't climb the ladder. We need God to come down to us. And Jesus' invitation to all of us this morning is, is come and see. Will you come? Will you see Jesus for who he is? Will you see Jesus, the one who was crushed by those he made, the ones that he came to seek and to save? If you're a Christian, I want to invite you this morning to come to the Lord's table and have that fresh look at Jesus Christ, the Savior who laid down his life for you to bring heaven to earth. If you're not a Christian, what will you do with the testimony of Jesus Christ? What will you do with his claims about himself? You become a Christian today by repenting of your sin, and trusting in him.
Come and see. Come and see. Let's pray.